HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ramona, organic Italian wine spritzes in a can. Hi, I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. So every day the shutdown continues to grow is another day that there will be a backlog. This week, we're looking at the unexpected ways the government shutdown has impacted our food system. There are nearly 1.6 million New Yorkers who rely on SNAP to feed themselves and their families every single day. There is a real impact on our friends and neighbors. A lot of farmers rely on commodity loans at the end of the year. Since the offices are not open, those loans aren't available to them. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman on their journey to success. And on today's podcast, we're going to talk about one small but incredibly significant part of that journey. It's about how we can achieve more meaning in our lives by gathering more thoughtfully. My guest today is Priya Parker author of The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. Priya is an expert in conflict resolution, including taking part in the peace process in the Middle East. She's also the founder of Thrive Labs, which helps leaders have more meaningful gatherings. And in her book, she explores everything from upending ritual events like a baby shower to getting everybody in the best room of mind for a productive meeting. Welcome, Priya. So happy to, so happy to have you here. Thank you for having me. You are the first guest that my husband has actually <laughs> brought to me. <laughs> wow. I know. Um, he was talking to you about another show, and he came home, and he's like, I think this woman's amazing. Oh, that's so lovely. Uh, you have to read her book, and gathering goes right straight to my heart, because I, I love to gather. When I um, had cancer, my immediate reaction wasn't, oh my gosh, I need to hide. Uh, my immediate reaction was, how many parties can I get out of? this? How many times can I get people together to make them less worried for me? Mm. Um, so I had a make, um, you know, make 
lemonade out of lemons party and we just ate tons of lemon pie and really people just wanted to look at me because I wasn't doing a lot of mm. one-on-one gathering or dates or anything and I hate the phone so there I was <laughs> they, we had conversations I'm I was here so uh, you take gatherings to a whole other level and I'll just say I was very moved I read your piece in Oprah about you hosting those kind of series of parties over this course of your cancer year as you call it and what was beautiful to me about the way you did it was at every step of the way you realize that there was a need both in your life but also in the life of your community because at some level when somebody is going through something like a cancer or a death your insight is it's not an individual process it's actually a collective one and so you hosted a kind of party though you didn't call it that to tell your colleagues that you had breast cancer with pink frosting cupcakes and champagne and you kept talking until they were kind of okay and in taking care of them, you were also taking care of you. And all the way through the double my, uh, bisectomy um, party. And to me, what is so profound about the way that you gathered through that year was that you did it in a way that allowed people to both help you, but also share the gift that cancer can be is to choose how to spend your time well. Yes. and. Uh, I- it was great, both for me, you know, I love being surrounded by people, but, um, you know, there's those questions in your mind, like, how am I going to tell everybody? Mm-hmm. And I don't want pity. Mm-hmm. Parties are a fantastic antidote so to pity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I wanted to set that tone of, please don't say you're sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, that's... I don't want to hear that. I don't need to hear that. And the parties all the double mastectomy, right? Was it was a lot of fun, um, but it was also a marker. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you talk about so much in your book, which is very important to you, is the why. Mm-hmm. Um, why are we gathering? With something like cancer, you really, I mean, I was pretty clear. And I was clear <laughs> in sharing like why we're getting together. But I understand lots of parties just happen, you know, going to have a bunch of people over um, or meetings happen and you think you know the purpose of it, but in fact, you haven't drilled down far enough to get the most out of the meeting. So it's not that it can't happen. Mm -hmm. It's just that there's things that you haven't um, reaped, benefited from that you can when you're getting a group together. So I'd love to have you just talk about that central idea. We tend to conflate category with purpose. And what I mean by that is when we think about our gatherings, and I believe this is true in our personal lives and in our professional lives, we skip quickly to the form. So let's have a workshop, or let's have an offsite, or let's have a birthday party. And if you think about, or I'm gonna have a wedding, and with each of these forms, the kind of, the symbols of that form come quickly into mind, right? So birthday candles for a birthday cake, or um, regardless of what your religion is, kind of archetypally, a woman in a white dress walking down an aisle, right? These kind of default assumptions of what something has to look like. And I think one of the reasons that our gatherings often are lackluster and frankly kind of vague is because we've skipped over why we actually want to host something. And we want to, and what I found I, on this journey, I, it's not just my own kind of, um, you, know, you know, perspective or opinion on gatherings. I also interviewed over a hundred gatherers in extreme contexts. So, you know, a rabbi, a dominatrix, camp counselors of Jewish Arab summer camps. 
and ask them each this question, what creates a transformative gathering? And in each of the cases, they had a purpose, and it was specific, and it was disputable. And what I mean by disputable was somebody could disagree with it. You shouldn't be bringing together Arab and Jewish teenagers in a summer camp in the United States. It, you know, is a dangerous, right? It's disputable. There's a there. You shouldn't be celebrating your cancer. It's disputable. And what I mean by disputable is basically somebody can disagree that, um, that this is a reason or that we should be gathering around this. And if somebody disagrees with it, you know you're saying something. Right. It's in conflict, there is power. And this notion of you know, not necessarily going with the flow, and which is why in upending and asking these questions again, like you had a baby shower, like who is that baby shower for? Let me ask that question. Is it about every person who's ever had a baby shower you know, before me who says this is why we have one? Mm-hmm. Or is it really about me in which case maybe my husband should be there? Mm-hmm. And I think that's... Um, and even to build on that, the baby shower, right, we, uh, there's a extreme moment in your life when when you know one gets pregnant a woman gets pregnant and at least in this context then there's there the the collective ritual around it for the most part is a baby shower and so immediately at least in my life my friends started planning and they started talking about the things of it right like should we should there be a theme should you is there, are we going to be pin the diaper on the donkey you know. <laughs> <laughs> and you know or I you think can, I haven't been to enough baby showers I've never you're lucky. seen that <laughs> <laughs> and part of and my husband said well can I come and in that simple question kind of uh, opened up a conversation about well what is this really for and I began to research the history of baby showers as one does when one's writing a book and you know originally or traditionally historically first of all giving birth was much more dangerous um, second of all parents were much younger and and often you know were at the beginning of their life so didn't have the resources to actually buy all of the things that take a you know take need a baby um, and and frankly primarily even after the baby was born it was the mother who pray, played primary caretaker. And if rituals and collective rituals are opportunities for a community to come together to help mark a transition, but also to begin to embody the values one wants to be in the world, the underlying assumptions of what a baby shower are for are no longer true. And therefore, the activities that we do at that baby shower, the people who we invite, the wisdom that we ask for, does not actually reflect at least my reality, which was a marriage in which we wanted to co-parent, a a family in which we wanted to welcome in a child, but not necessarily have that moment be surrounded by us getting stuff. Um, (laughs) And so, but that's true for all of our gatherings. And I think many of the inherited forms that we um, rely on no longer necessarily reflect our modern realities or values. But instead of rethinking, well, what do I want this thing to look like? We tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater and then just don't gather or gather vaguely. Right. The the specificity is important. And as is knowing your guests, understanding your guests, and getting them to bring their truth selves to the event. So something meaningful can happen between the people. Absolutely. And I love the questions that you have as conversation starters. And I'm going to decide that the two of us here constitute a gathering. <laughs> um, the two of us are gathering. All of you who are listening, I want you to think about these questions yourselves and perhaps ask your friends at your next gathering. But here, Priya, I'm going to ask you some of the questions that indeed are starters for you. Okay. Um, so what what is an early experience that you had that connects you with the work you do today? 
I grew up in what became a divided home. I was born in Zimbabwe. I, um, my mother's an anthropologist. She's Indian. My father's white American, and he's a hydrologist. And for the first six years of my life, we lived together and lived in Africa and Southeast Asia, and we eventually moved um, to Tucson and then to Virginia. And within a year, they were divorced. Sorry, within a year, they were separated. Within two years, they were divorced. And then within three years, they had both remarried other people. And over the course of their remarriage, they formed, as people do, joint families and, and separate cultures in those families. And every two weeks, I'd go back and forth between these two households and leave one house. And that house was, a, in my mother's case, an Indian, British, atheist, theosophical, literally incense-burning, meditation-filled vegetarian liberal home and would go a mile away and enter my father's home, which is a, a white evangelical Christian conservative um, Republican climate skeptic, you know, twice a week church going family. And I have always been interested in the way we come together and the way we come apart. And, and specifically within those cultural contexts, our assumption of what something has to look like. And so my kind of journey to get to this point has been a navigation of two very different worlds that often denied each other's truths and basic grasp on reality. And so I've always been interested in how communities collectively define meaning, collectively define truth, and collectively define the other. So as a child, was this very confusing to you? Because... You know, you love both parents. You spend time with both parents. They each think they are completely correct, and they get to live according to their values. But you're in the middle. So what did that do for you? I think that my story is kind of an extreme version of all of our stories, right? I think almost, I mean, no parent, whether, you know, mother or father, um, is the same person. Right. So at some point, at some level, we are all navigating this abyss. <laughs> Mine is just more extreme. But I, I, I don't think I was confused until my teenage years um, because it made because I became more conscious that I couldn't just be an inheritor of these different truths. At some level, I had to begin to think about what I believed. And I remember one story I was um, actually this was my father and stepmother before they were married, went on a date. And all of their dates were family dates. They brought, you know, me, my, the other wrinkle in the story is my best friend in elementary school and I actually set our parents up. So my best friend became my stepsister. And so we went on this family date, quote unquote, and at some point I was wearing a necklace and um, that necklace was a heart and a cross and a, um, I think it was a Ganesh or a Hindu god. And my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, got me those charms in an old market in Delhi. And my future stepbrother said to me, Priya, what, what is that? And I said, oh, well, this is my heart, and this is my, I can't remember, I th said something like, this is my father's faith, Christianity is my mother's faith, you know, Hinduism, and, and it's connected by love. And um, he said something like, well, you can't be both. And I looked up to my future stepmother, and I said, you know, kind of confused, no one had ever said that to me before. And she said um, something like, well, he's right, honey, but it's okay, you can decide when you're 18. What? And therein <laughs> began my journey. <laughs> and so I think part of my, you know, when you're when you're be, when you're forced to face and make distinctions, um, 
sometimes for survival's sake, you begin to ask a lot more questions, or at least I did, um, than when I was just sitting comfortably thinking that this was other people's problem. And then I imagine it made you want to forge your own path, right? Because it wasn't, you weren't going to necessarily just follow in the path of the people who came before you. For a while, it made me want to hide. Um, I was a chameleon. I mean, I still am. And I now use it consciously rather than unconsciously. But my, you know, my husband many years later would point out when I, and this is as an adult, when I was in my mother's house and somebody would sneeze, I would say, bless you. And when I was in my father's house and somebody would sneeze, I would say, God bless you. You know, I just kind of insert a God in there. And I, so for a long time, I basically navigated both worlds. I understood what to say and what not to say. I understood um, where to speak up and where not to. And I learned the codes. And it wasn't really until college where I began to question, what of myself am I cutting off? What am I making invisible in order to belong? And there's a, one of the books that has most influenced me is by a, a, a facilitator, actually, named Adam Kahane. And he wrote this book called Power and Love. And he talks about these two competing systems in any type of uh, two competing forces in any system, a family, a company, a team. Um, and he quotes Paul Tillich, who is a Christian theologian. And, and basically, Paul Tillich says these, these two forces, power and love. And power is the desire to self-actualize in a system. And love is the desire for the separated to become whole. So power is the desire to become. And power and love is the desire to belong. And he says, power without love is abusive. But love without power was anemic. And I realized that for much of my life, I prioritized belonging over becoming. And a huge part of my adult life and what I'm so interested in gatherings. That's really profound. Is that I believe all gatherings, when they're conscious or unconscious, are the competition between belonging and becoming. And I don't think that the best gatherings are when you only allow belonging. That's why there's conflict and friction because out of that, there's the spark of Well, knowledge. absolutely. And that we all kind of, I say this often at the beginning when I'm facilitating group sessions, which is the dance of all group life is the dance between the I and the we. And we tend to assume people see gathering you know, on my forehead and that I'm like the gathering person. I'm the we person. But I actually come from a context where often gatherings are either, you can, you can have unhealthy peace as much as you can have unhealthy conflict. And you can have healthy conflict and healthy peace. And a huge part of, I think, gatherings, whether it's a family wedding and you're trying to figure out what's the ritual that I want to have in my life that honors my husband's and I's faith, while also uh, honoring the past six generations from which I come, that's an I versus we question. How do I belong to the community, to the collective, while also not disappearing part of myself when it's in con conflict with the values of the community? Right. And it's sort of an acceptance of personal evolution and the promoting of that in every context, not just gathering. And I think you see this in restaurants. I mean, this is your world more than mine. But the the desire for a customer to make a substitution to the menu. Right. Who are you trying to please? Is there a vision? Is there a collective way in a restaurant that either this is the way the, the dish comes it's not up for substitutions, or are we trying to, no matter what, please the customer? And that's, I think, in the best restaurants, a conscious dance. Um, 
but I think that in any type of group dynamic, and I define gathering as anytime three or more people are coming together, all I'm saying is no, have a specific purpose. Be willing to stand up for that purpose. And then think about how you can create a context where people both feel like they belong to something without feeling like they've completely disappeared. Right. Everybody wants to be seen yes. um, and recognized, which is part of, I think, you're asking the question. So another question from your group of questions um, is to talk about crucible moments, um, the, the moment that shaped your life. And I'm just wondering, and shaped your worldview, what, what is that moment for you? I think that you know, this exercise comes from uh, Bill George's work, and uh, I first came across the question when I did my CAN group when I was in graduate school. And I think people can have multiple crucible moments. Uh, one of mine um, was when I was a freshman at the University of Virginia. I was upset by kind of race relations and the way that um, racial climate seemed to be to me as a student. The first question people would ask me is, what are you? Before they'd ask me, like, where do you, which dorm do you live in? And they meant racially. Um, and I learned about a process called sustained dialogue, um, which was kind of my journey into this, this whole world, realizing you could actually study the life of groups. And I, I launched it on September 10th, 2001. Mm. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And it was kind of the right place at the right time, and it started to take off in, in our college. And I, um, at the same time, my father and stepmother and their family had moved to Italy. And um, to kind of take a year off, my father was able to get a, um, a change in his job to go work in Rome for a year. And we had all, years ahead of before, said, if he can get this, we will all take a year off wherever we are and go live in Rome. And this was this sort of long family narrative for many years, and it kept on getting delayed, and it kept on getting delayed. First, it was going to be when we were in high school, then I was going to take a gap year, then it was going to be my first year, I was going to delay it. But then it, it ended up landing when I was actually already in college and deeply becoming to, you know, passionately search my own questions around sustained dialogue and everything. And long story short, my crucible moment was the moment where I decided that I was not going to take the spring semester off and go move with my, to my family in Rome. Um, I was going to stay in school. And in this, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but in this context, I'd never actively, publicly done something that I felt um, was against my father and stepmother's wishes. Um, and it felt like a, like a cutting off. And had I not done that, I don't think Sustained Dialogue would have taken off. It was so fragile. And I was you know, one of the co-founders in the way that it did. And I definitely would not have been shaped in the way that I did. But it was the first time, I think, that I had to do something. I mean, this sounds so trite, that wouldn't please my father and had to hold on to it. And it made me begin to see, going back to the chameleon element, it was the first time that I could that being a chameleon didn't serve me. And what was the fallout, or was there fallout? Well, you know, like in any family, there's different memories of it. I recently had a conversation <laughs> with my father, and he denies this. But um, they didn't speak to me for many months. It was this sort of, it was, I think in family systems, simple acts, quote unquote, can feel very symbolic. And so it was a, it was a cut. Um, and they were very upset. And I kind of just had to hold that for many months. So it was a very, very, very cooling off period. 
And um, but then eventually, many years later, I remember when I graduated, my father said to me, you made the right decision. I'm so proud of you. Um, and and part of, I think, all of our untangling from family and then developing families of our own is I think of families as units of gathering and whether that's dinner time or whether that's the informal gatherings, right? The things that we say to each other on the way out the door. These are all containers for culture and norms and values and beliefs and underlying all of this is who are we and who are we not and if you are something that we are not what do we do with that i think acceptance was the the final stage there which is great but it was also a moment that it didn't seem like to yourself you were rebelling you were taking a stand it was something that because of something you really believed in, and it was who you were. But I'm curious now, and this will be the last question I'm turning back on you, um, is there something now that you rebel against that is within you? You're just like, ah, oh, this makes me crazy. Oh, so many things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I currently am rebelling against the idea that... Um, to be a mother has to be a primary identity and that you still can be a wonderful mother. And you have two children? Yes. And how old are they? Uh, one and four. Oh, wow. Oh, they're little. <laughs> they're little. Because I have two kids as well. Um, I never really had to rebel to achieve what you've just laid out because I think um, I accepted this notion of compromise. Mm -hmm. I was a very full-time, um, where I was working full-time cause I was at food and wine. And yet I was also like a full-time mother cause you don't do, I don't, you don't really do either of those jobs part-time. Mm -hmm. Um, and my, you know, my compromise, if that's the right word was that, um, both felt cheated. Mm. The being the mother felt felt cheated. I could always spend more time with my kid. I could do pick up or drop off, but really, I did not want to, um, so I didn't. <laughs> and I could do more work, um, but I did not want to because I wanted to have both mm -hmm. both sides of this. But this um, question of identity and you know being a mom that's really uh, burdensome. So, in your rebelling, what is your action? Like, what are you doing to confront that? I think that one of the things when I f had my first child, I would go to kind of mom groups, you know, gather gatherings, and I would leave feeling kind of worried in part because of the implicit assumptions through conversation around what was supposed to be support groups were at least the ones that I went to, like the teacher or other other young uh, mothers encouraging one another to like leave work. And and I began and I came home and was upset by this. And my husband said to me, I don't understand why you think that the people who share your values are going to be the people who gave birth in the exact same month as you did. <laughs> oh, my God, I love him. <laughs> He's pretty great. And um, it, he said, think about the women in your life, whether they're mothers or not, who you admire about how they spend their time and spend time with them. And one of them is a woman who's. 25 years older than me and one of actually both of them are one has children one does not and it reminded me that um, we you know the the 
I think the notionhood and, and the concept of mother is a very loaded and baggaged one in all in all societies. And I think that the generation that I'm a part of, one of the things that I've seen over and over again is we start, particularly in heterosexual couples, primarily I would say, where the man and woman are equal and deeply believe in equality. Often the woman has either as much or more education than the man. And, um, and then children come and then we start replicating these kind of 1950s norms. Sometimes even more than our parents did. We, we are kind of back to our grandparents. And one of the things that I've realized is that this is in part because we don't necessarily have models of what it can look like for both to be both. And I think that a lot of the decisions that end up getting made in terms of how mothers or fathers spend their time are unconscious and come down to like boring, logistical, banal things. And so I rebel against it. In part one, I have a partner who's committed to the equality of it, but like through Google calendars and through actually saying if you don't actually divide and allocate time, things tend to that that second shift tends to fall on the mother um, or the language that we use. You know, he's not helping. He's the dad um, or or simply finding different ways to talk about um, or or simply speaking honestly about my experience of being a mother and sometimes it's wonderful and sometimes it's terrible. I mean, it's sort of changing all of the norms that we have that either elevates it on this pedestal, which I think is dangerous um, and makes us this incredible, you know, this only incredible thing that's too pure that shouldn't be, you know, uh, touched into these other contexts or that it's this terrible thing. And I think both are deeply dangerous. It's a, it, and I think part of the Esther Perel is somebody I, I admire the way she thinks about society, and she says that one of the one of the biggest inventions in current society is the is the invention of modern fatherhood. And I think part of motherhood and what we're rebelling against, what I'm rebelling against, is actually all of this needs to be in conversation with what does it mean to parent, and then what are the larger systems that reinforce these roles um, to make sure that our family systems, whatever they may look like, I'm not assuming that they're heterosexual or even to parent, um, reflect the values that we want to be in the world, and that. But many of those things come down to. Um, like negotiating over Google calendars. <laughs> Damn how it's laundry. <laughs> exactly. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the entertaining side of gathering. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Ramona, the wine that doesn't need a glass, a bottle opener, or an occasion to drink it. Ramona's new flavor, lemon, is available now. Created by Jordan Salcito, Ramona is a white wine drink that's made with organic Zabibo grapes from Sicily and naturally flavored with grapefruit or lemons. It's wine, but cooler. To learn more, visit drinkramona.com or follow Drink Ramona on Instagram. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Coral Lee, and I'm the host of Meant to Be Eaten here on HRN. Every week, I look at cross-cultural exchange in food and contemporary media. What determines authenticity? What, if anything, gets lost in translation when cooking foods from another's culture? You can find Meant to Be Eaten wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. 
My guest today is Priya Parker, and I'm ecstatic to have her on the show talking about gatherings. Her book, The Art of Gathering, is something you absolutely have to read. I, um, I'm an intermittent reader. I mean, I wish I could say that. <laughs> I'm reading things all the time. <laughs> but this book captured my imagination because... It took some of the things that I thought about entertaining and reaffirmed them, and some of them, uh, and some of those affirmations are, you know, getting um, really thinking through who your guests are going to be and why they should be together, and not trying to shoehorn people or concepts into one event when really they should be separated because it makes for a really crappy gathering so i was like oh check i i got that one <laughs> but um the way priya starts thinking about gatherings it starts so far in advance so um to me i was starting with the with the guest list um but i love priya to talk about when I, when i was reading the book i noticed that you deconstructed every single phase of the gathering and it's actually quite linear in your mind uh in order to have the right outcome, you start very early at plotting the outcome. And the first is talking about why, which is how we started the show. But beyond that, um, you know, it's talking about your role as a host, your how you put together an invitation. Mm -hmm. So I guess if we start with the why, and let's say we had nailed the why we're getting together, um, the next thing you need to do is you need to figure out the guests, and then you need to invite the guests, and then you, the other thing that I had never really thought of before was the transitional moment, and now I am so focused on the transitional <laughs> moment. I really am. So do you want to start us maybe with the, after the why, mm -hmm. what happens in your mind? So the why and the who are deeply interconnected. And we often get to the why by kind of backing into the who. So what I mean by that is let's have a dinner party. Okay, who should we invite? Okay, we're going to invite this person. Well, why should we invite that person? Well, I don't really know if, at best, I don't really know if these two people will get along. Like at best, we talk about the dynamics in the room. And so what I'm saying, and weddings are a perfect example of this, right? Like, Many of the fights that happen over guest lists are proxy wars about purpose. Should I invite my college buddy or my mother's colleague? Well, who is this wedding for first? And are we talking about who we want to kind of be in the future? And therefore, we should actually, we just met that couple six months ago, but we feel really close to them. Or should I invite my you know, friend for 20 years, even though we don't share that much more in common anymore, but I feel a sense of loyalty and that he or she represents this part of my childhood or you know, whatever it is. Once you figure out your why, if it's specific and disputable, it should wink at your who. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, Jancy Dunn is a writer who I spoke with earlier last summer, and she was hosting a dinner party and asked me to kind of art of gatherify it. And I and I think she may you know come into it thinking, well, I'm going to tell her about the wine placement or the food. And and I said, well, what's the purpose? And she said, well, it's a dinner party. Does a dinner party have a purpose? And I said, well, just let's work with me, like. What is a need in your life right now that by bringing people together, specific people they might fulfill? And she said, well, I'm a worn out mom. I, uh, a friend of mine recently cut me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. She cut into triangles. She get it to me. She gave it to me. I cried. And um, I was I realized that I'm really worn out. So so I said, OK, let's let's build on that. Give it a name. She said the worn out mom's hootenanny. Let's just pause there, because giving these things a name is important. Yes. And in naming so many things can happen. So the hootenanny, I love the hootenanny. Part. When life gives you lemon, make lemon meringue pie. Right. Well, what were you saying in that context? You right. were saying you were you were 
using a, a common kind of you know advice in the culture, you were relating it to cancer, but you didn't call, you didn't name your thing cancer, but you winked at it. And then it was embodied. You had lemon meringue pie. It was also embodied because you're exhausted. So your mother was the one who hosted. Similarly with Jancy, she did takeout in part because she's a worn out mom. And I mean, in that case, the name of the the name of the guests were in the title, the worn out mom's hootenanny. So she thought about her six mothers, who friends who were mothers who thought that, you know, they might also be worn out. So part of all of this to say is when you kind of have a sense of what your who is, you don't have to include because of obligation as much. And particularly in communities where there's a pattern of hosting, I hosted you, so then you host me. Um, there can be a sense that, well, this is they had a, they had us over, so we need to have them over. And what I would say is I think part of gathering consciously when you start to host specifically, um, people start realizing nobody wants to be invited out of obligation. You want to be invited because people want you there. And so part of this shift in culture is when we actually start gathering with specificity, people also know, wow, I'm invited because they know that I actually relate to this purpose. This is true in companies. This is true in, you know, in families. I'll give another example that I love. A friend of mine, um, this isn't in the book, he, his grandmother lives in Germany. And uh, one day, mysteriously, he and all of his cousins got an invitation to attend her birthday party. I think it was in Germany, but there was an interesting detail on the invitation, which is no spouses or children. And this was quite controversial in the family and and, and definitely thought, disputable, disputable. And the spouses were like, what are we, you know, whatever. We don't know. belong. Yeah, exactly. We don't belong. Why how, shouldn't she be over including us? Anyway, <laughs> long story short, now I have to be babysitter that weekend, let alone not invited to grandma's reunion. So anyway, but it was grandma. They went. And I was very curious about this whole thing. And afterwards came back, he came back and I said, how was it? And he said, he was, he was delighted by the gathering. And he said, it's the first time in my adult life where I spent time with my cousins, where we weren't also navigating the, our spouses and our children. And we could basically figure out what does it mean, look like to have meaningful adult relationships. Like, how beautiful wow. is that? And it doesn't, she doesn't have to do it every year. It could mm -hmm. be the last time she ever did it, does it again. Um, but that when we exclude with purpose, we ex it's not personal, it's purposeful. Um, you're, you're creating an opportunity um, to reimagine something. And this is as true in conflict resolution as it is in companies, which is one of the things we found in sustained dialogue were that the groups where there was two specific groups that were brought together to focus on their relationships. So like black, white, Greek life. There was a group that we had at, at the University of Virginia or Jewish Arab dialogue or even more specifically Jewish American, Arab American. They have their own specific dynamics because they're diaspora. Some of them aren't even some of them are multi like fourth generation. Some of them are, you know, immigrants themselves. Um, that the more specific the relationship, when it had a purpose, the more transformative the dialogue and that the dialogue. And that's because it doesn't get diluted by taking care of the person who least belongs, which once you're a host, I'm not saying don't be generous in the room. I'm assuming generosity. So when you have a purpose and there's somebody who doesn't necessarily fit into that purpose, you're going to over host to make sure that that person is involved. And when you're doing that, you're actually diluting the purpose and not protecting the purpose for everybody else is there. So make the decision first about who should actually be in the room. It's the power of exclusion, which when you first read that, you're like, oh, 
Yeah. Exclusion. That's <laughs> terrible. No one should be excluded. But your point is that when you exclude, the true purpose reveals itself or can, um, can be carried out. And, and perhaps inversely, when you over-include, the true purpose gets diluted. Right. And, you know, if you want to have... I'm not saying don't have... There are certain gatherings that benefit from size, right? The more the merrier is true in some cases. It's true in a barn raising. It's true in a concert. It's true in a soccer match. Um, but in a lot of... It's not true everywhere. And in a lot of cases, particularly in our smaller, more intentional gatherings, the more is the scarier or the more is at least the hairier. And if you're going to have more, make sure that it that you are choosing to to have that more. I like how you said in, in so many gatherings, you know, you need a defined space, right? So the kitchen, you think people are going to the kitchen because they want to be near the food. But in fact, some reason that sometimes the reason they want to be in the kitchen is it's an con- enclosed space. Yes. And you're like rubbing up against people and you have forced conviviality or there's conviviality because you're so close. Yes. Um, so tell me about this transitional moment because I want that's something I want to master. So I feel like I can master the um, the who and I can perhaps master the exclusion now that I feel empowered to do so. But it's this notion of um, the transition from the invitation to the event and not overselling logistics, which I also thought was fascinating. So we tend to think about invitations as a a carrier of logistical information, right? Date, time, and place. And one of the reasons why I say give your gathering a name is because it primes people to understand what is this thing for? How should I show up? Is this silly? Is this serious? What is this thing? And you're hosting your guests from the moment of discovery. So the moment they receive this invitation all the way through the moment they arrive into your door. And we tend to only think, whether this is a conference or whether it's our wedding, that the moments that we interact with them are to let them know what they need to know. And we think that that's only logistical information. But partly what they need to know is how do I psychologically show up? Which side of myself am I showing? Am I showing my silly side? Am I showing my um, executive side? Am I showing my biracial side? Like, what is this thing about? And in conflict resolution, nine, you know, there's this kind of rule of thumb. It says 90% of the success that happens in the room happened because of what happened you did before. You're priming people into the moment. And then what happens in the room isn't controlled or planned. It's generative. Something is created that didn't exist beforehand. But you waste that opportunity if you spend a lot of your time clearing your throat, you know, at the beginning (laughs) of the meeting. So a couple examples of kind of ushering in. I mean, one of the groups that I interviewed and spent some time with were game designers. And game designers understand, and this is whether it's board games or physical games or digital games, that the most powerful element of any type of game is that you're basically creating a, a magic circle is the word, is the language they use. But what I call it a temporary alternative world. And in any type of game, and I think gathering, there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And your opening is your beginning. So when people walk into the world, into your world, and this could be leaving the hallway of a company and walking to the conference room, this could be leaving their car and walking up to your house or your apartment, but basically the threshold, they're leaving one world and that could be the world of their phone or the world of like, I just got off the phone with my, you know, my daughter and she was at a soccer game. And so I, I got off the phone and I'm thinking about myself as a father or I like my VP just called and the sales numbers are bad. So I'm, I'm coming in. People are coming in with all sorts of psychological stuff in their head. And basically the idea of the opening moment, meaning when they first come in, not the kind of the, the launch of the gathering, but when they walk across that transition is to think about how are you creating an opening moment that invites them to leave the world outside and come in. And this can be 
very simple or very complex. Marina Abramovich, in a lot of her gatherings as a performance artist, you know, now has, has this Abramovich method of which part of it is taking people and giving them noise canceling headphones and locking their phone into a locker, you know, and 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 having them listen in silence for thirty minutes before they hear the music and hearing it completely differently. But it can also be very simple. I, you know, when you write a book on gatherings, you get all sorts of text messages from people at parties and one of my favorite was somebody who walked into a party at in like it was literally like a post-college party in Georgetown and they walked in and they were handed a trophy full of like fruit punch with vodka you know some punch given a told to like take a shot of it at the door um, come in and then they all all of the guests sang this song and it was a song from the hosts, like, I don't know, Secret Society at their college. And many of the people had no idea what this thing was. But in that moment, you walk in, you're seen, you're connected. I mean, you can disagree. It's disputable. Do I don't want to drink that drink. What is that drink? Are there other germs on this trip? Like, but part of this whole idea is like, what are you doing at the moment of entry when people are wondering, how should I behave? Who do I know here? How do I behave here? What part of myself do I show? And to know that you are hosting from the moment of the invitation, but then from the moment they walk in. And it can be simple. Another example was, you know, in, in India, um, particularly in Hindu households, one of the threshold ceremonies you walk in. My mother still does this now when I walk into her home. And she um, is like a silver plate or any type of plate. And you do a, just kind of a very what's called an arthi. And it's lighting a candle and kind of welcoming your guests. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, those may the belief system behind that ritual may not be your belief system, but we can learn from it, which is all of these moments and gatherings are a temporary alternative world where you're inviting people in, you're holding them, and then you're exiting them. And we tend to under host in those opening moments and cede our power of hosts to whatever the cultural norms are of the people we invite. And all I'm saying is own what it is and the environment you want to create and people will thank you for it. I'm curious about the gathering in the digital world because there was an interview you did and someone said, so what about online gathering? Now, one of the reasons that gathering is so powerful to me is that I feel that the, in the world we need more gathering and that as we recede into our phones and as we become more tribal and as we sort of pull back in all kinds of ways, it's really important to put ourselves forward in contact with real people. Uh, how do you feel about online gathering? I think that online gatherings mirror many of the dynamics of offline gatherings. I think a Facebook group, and um, right now Facebook is you know in the news for deeply problematic reasons. And if you look at the social technology of the Facebook group, there's a host, right? You have a decision of what are the ground rules or norms. How am I inviting people? Who, how, what happens when people exit? How do I moderate this dialogue? If people break the rules, how do I actually correct them? Is there a norm where people can correct each other? Ideally, the best, you know, I, I interviewed somebody who said to get people talking in the Facebook group, I as a host would say something completely provocative just to get them talking and then slowly inch away from the conversation. <laughs> so, you know, there's heat. There's, so I think a lot of the dynamics that exist offline, on, offline exist online. I think there's also a lot of dangers online, right? It's a lot easier to have a mob mentality on, on Twitter or on Facebook. It's a lot. And, and But I guess one of the questions I'm asking is do you feel – that there's a power to the in-person versus the online. Oh, absolutely. Even though the systems reflect each other. We, 
tend to behave differently. I mean, research shows this over and over again, online and offline. And we tend to behave differently, particularly in different contexts and online, right? Different sides we want to show our avatars. It's also very easy to hide and to show whatever source you want to self side you want to show online. Um, one of the things I often say is aim in your gathering offline. Aim for don't aim for Instagrammable. Aim for you had to be there. And I think in person, first of all, all of the kind of nonverbals that one gets when you're physically with one another, um, you lose when you're online. But it's also very difficult. You know, my my obsession in gathering, there's many forms of making meaning. My core way of making meaning that I'm most interested in is conversation and dialogue. What is the content of what we're talking about? How do you set up the frame so that the things we're talking about are meaningful, that you can include people, that there's a level of specificity and story, but you're still talking about something bigger, all of that stuff. I think it's very difficult to have a generative dialogue among multiple people online, in part because of the like the nature of the of the space. You can absolutely have a debate, you know, and and um, email lists are famous for, you know, some of these these big debates. But I think it's easier to it's much more difficult to say some of the nasty things that people say to each other online than you do off. But also we are many selves and it's much easier, I think, to be many selves in person than it is to be many selves online, um, in part because of the nature of the of the algorithms that designed you know, what does it mean to be a user? What is it if I have five ways to interact with you about whether or not I like your post and there are five buttons, that's a pretty limited way of interacting and telling you that I like you. They become proxies for whether or not I um, am validating you or not validating you. And when we get locked into specific systems that are designed by engineers, um, our ways of interacting with each other are have to be contained within that um, kind of modality. And what event have you thrown or created where you felt um, most seen <laughs> and understood? I mean, I think probably my wedding. Um, and in part because, to go back to our earlier conversation, you know, weddings can be proxy battles for other things. And for my life, my wedding was the first time where there was going to be a public ceremony that I was technically in charge of, right? A high school graduation, both sides of my family were there, but I wasn't the host, quote unquote, right? You get onto a stage, you accept your diploma. A wedding at least the way we were conceiving of it, we could design the ritual in any way we wanted. We might have a minister, we might not. We, you know, everything was up in the up in the air. And it was this um, opportunity for me to get very clear, not just on what are my beliefs, but also what are my partner's beliefs. And when they are in conflict, how do we, how do we just name that? And, you know, a couple, we, for our actual ritual, for the actual wedding, we had our witnesses, our groomsmen and bridesmen, but we called them witnesses, stand in a circle rather than in a line. Um, we both walked up the aisle. We kept an aisle. We nodded to, you know, my Christian background. Um, and we had community vows, not just individual vows. So we had vows to each other, which we wrote, and vows, uh, and then we asked the community to, and then we had a vow to the community, and then we asked the community to take a vow to us. 
And a huge part of this was me owning the fact that I am thoughtful about gatherings and that I wasn't embarrassed by it. I mean, I was slightly embarrassed <laughs> that we, we walked out to Chan Chan, we, we, the, um, you know, Buena Vista Social Club. We, and I think a huge part of this was um, for me to use this opportunity, which the purpose for our wedding was to both kind of connect the different sides of our worlds together, but to, in one fell swoop, be seen and witnessed in our kind of fractured worlds um, as building a new one, a new form, uh, which was our marriage. And I think that the idea of taking a public vow, and there's very few contexts where public vows are still taken, um, is a very powerful thing. So um, I have two last questions. Again, you're very big on the strong ending. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, giving, you, I'm giving you a warning. Uh, one is, are there restaurants that you've been to where you felt they're perfect places for gatherings, either because of the size, the scale, mm. the hospitality? Um, my, I, right now, my platonic ideal <laughs> um, of a restaurant in, in my life in New York is Locanda Vini Ioli. Um, it's a restaurant in Brooklyn that makes you and and I define gathering as three times or more three people or more and I usually go there with my husband. So the gathering in that context is like us with our hosts, meaning the restauranteurs and the owners and the wait staff as part of our gathering. And to me, they create a context. You walk in and there's kind of a buzz, you know, that that, that light, lively buzz. Um, but you also feel like they're kind of running it out of their kitchen. And um, the food is beautiful. It's Tuscan. It's, and it's very specific. It's very disputable. When I actually first went there, I, uh, I didn't totally get it. Um, and I then spent time in Tuscany and began to realize what that was and what they were trying to do. And I just think that it's this beautiful, it's, it's as formal as it needs to be and no more. Um, and each time we walk in, we feel like we are in, we are home, except we're at the home that we couldn't create ourselves. <laughs> and you don't have to clean up. <laughs> yes. And I would say the second is a person I really admire is Dario Ciccini, um, the butcher. And we've spent I it was uh, time with him uh, in Tuscany, both in his restaurants um, and when he comes to New York. And to me, he is the most beautiful avatar of a host. And, you know, he only he speaks Italian and French. So. We don't even necessarily share. I mean, kind of. I sort of speak Spanish, and he responds in French. And we, but he, um, when you first walk into his butchery, um, he hugs and greets almost everybody, almost physically. You know that comes in, and he's wearing his like apron covered in you know blood. You get a piece of toast and lard, and you get a glass of wine. You know, and it's two p.m. in the afternoon, and. If you go, join and go to one of his meals upstairs, you're seated at a long table with a bunch of strangers, and and he's a showman, and he knows that he owns it, right? He's authentic, but he and he's kind of he's both larger than life, but he's also deeply, deeply serving you. And he, I talk about the book about in your openings, create both honor and awe, honor your guests and awe them. And to me, Dario represents that ability to both honor his guests by seeing you when you walk in and filling you with love, but also awing you in whether it's reciting Dante or doing the or things that he does. Singing opera. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's an experience. It's actually completely unforgettable. Whereas the uh, first example you gave, it's almost magical in the fact that it doesn't stand out. Completely. You know, that it blends it's into almost the... almost invisible. 
it blends into your life. And the last question is, on the show I always ask my guests to pay it forward and honor a, a, a woman who inspires them in the world of hospitality. For you, I'm just we can expand the world of hospitality. Mm. It can be people who have been hospitable uh, to you. But... Um, or it could be a mentor of an of another stripe. I know that you have a variety of mentors. Many of them are men. Mm-hmm. A woman in hospitality, mm-hmm. or it could be a woman mentor in um, gathering, connecting people, which is all part of hospitality, as you know. Um, the person who's coming up is Rhonda Slim. Um, she's a Lebanese American. Uh, now American, and she is uh, one of the most exquisite um, conflict resolution moderators um, that I've been privileged to work with. And she was the facilitator and moderator of the Arab-American-European dialogue you mentioned earlier. And Rhonda is the one, She's. She, I mentioned her a little bit in the book, she was the one who taught me that 90% of the way the gathering goes down happens what hap- you know, before you walk into the room. And this Arab-American-European dialogue that I was a part of as a moderating team, it lasted for a series of years, uh, this group of Arab-American-European um, influential citizens would come together and opposition leaders to look at whether Islam and democracy were compatible. And they would commit to meeting three times a year for three days at a time, eight hours a day in dialogue. And I was the rapporteur, so I was on the team and I was taking verbatim notes kind of on the computer transcribing these notes because there was no video, audio recorder in the room on purpose. And Rhonda spent, before this was set up, she spent two years traveling around the Middle East, having tea with potential participants' aunts to build trust, to talk about why it was worth engaging, to talk about what it would look like if she was the moderator in the room, to navigate, to go physically across, you know, certain areas that were physically unsafe and people told her not to do to show that she was willing to take risks in the same way that she was asking them to take risks. And often in these rooms, she would be the one of the only women and she um, held these rooms in a way that both helped people see each other, but really focused on the heat. And I would like to honor her in the work that she does um, because she's both deeply hopeful and she also hosts in a way that forces people to reckon with the things they don't want to reckon with. And that, people, is a beautiful way we're going to end speaking broadly today. Thank you so much, Pierre, for joining me on the show. Thank you, my amazing engineer, Matt. Thank you for all of you for listening. You know where to find me, at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. And Priya, where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram also at Priya Parker, or my website, priyaparker.com, and join for newsletter. Um, and thank you for having me. I would just say to think about over the next month to, of hosting a gathering that scares you in some way, and then come and tell me about it. Awesome. Thanks, everybody. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.